0: Hi, everyone. I'm Rafi Jakobovic, and you're listening to Drinking and Joshing, Torah of the Twist. And this episode, Gabe and Amanda learn about some South American rivalries.
1: Hey, Gabe.
2: Hey, Amanda.
1: You know how last time you were in charge of the show? Yes. And we did the last Torah portion? Yeah. Okay, so you know what follows the last Torah portion?
2: The Book of Joshua.
1: No, silly, the first Torah portion. What? Yes, it's so exciting. We are officially hitting season two today. Our first Torah portion Bereshiet.
2: Whoa.
1: And not only is that exciting for all the reasons I've already mentioned, but just in case anyone was keeping track at home, this was my bat mitzvah portion.
2: Wow. Mazal Tov. Let's get started.
1: It's a little insane that we are starting season two, but I guess that's what happens when hafokba hafokba. you turn it, you turn it again, and you start from the beginning. And for us, we are starting at the beginning. We are starting with Parshat Sheet today, and we are really incredibly excited to have two phenomenal people with us today to help us bring in this new book, this new chapter, this new season. First, I'm really excited to welcome our featured guest today, Rabbi Alejandro Avruch, or Rab Ale. Rabbi Alejandro Avruch graduated from the Latin American Rabbinic Seminary in 2002 and also studied at the Superior Institute of Rabbinical Studies, Abraham J. Heschel in Buenos Aires, and gaining his Master's in Rabbinic Literature and Jewish Education at the Schechter Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem after studying for his Master's in Rabbinic Literature at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York in 2001, and for his Master's in Jewish Education at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2002. He is the author of the Sidor Eight Bazman, A Time Within Time, in 2012, whose first edition was presented by Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, Pope Francis, and whose prologue was written by Rabbi Harold Kushner, and we have the pictures to prove it. We got to see them. It was very exciting. Rabbi Ali was honored with the distinction of the Human Rights Award for B'nai B'rith Argentina for his social work in shanty towns in 2014 and with the Prize Men of Buenos Aires together with the prestigious priest Father Pepe by the Provincia Bank Foundation of Buenos Aires. He is currently rabbi of the Amichai community, one of the biggest Jewish congregations in Buenos Aires, since 2017, he has been the president of the Latin American Rabbinic Assembly, the continental representation of the Rabbinical Assembly of the World Masorti Movement. He is married to Marina Degziar and has four children, Giselle, Metal, Noah, and Shai, and two grandchildren, Dan and Eva. It is also an incredible privilege to welcome our Q&A guest for today, Rafael Jacobovitz, who was a Cornell graduate and a good longtime friend. Rob Ale, Rafi, we're so excited to have you. Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for the time and thank you for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah,
0: very excited to be here and meet you, Rabbi. Hello, Rafi. How are you? (laughs) Pretty
3: good.
1: (laughs) And of course, it wouldn't be a new beginning, a new adventure without my two favorite people to journey with. Hello to my co-host with the co-most. What's up, Gabe Snyder?
2: Hello. Hello.
1: And of course, our favorite executive producer, the one that really we'd be happy to eat, drink, and sleep in the sukkah with. What's going on, Idan?
0: Not much. Just got a haircut, so feeling good?
1: (laughs) New year, new hair. I can relate. Let's get started.
2: We're in the beginning, and there's not a lot going on. Actually, everything is going on. It's chaos and dark, and God is gliding over the water, and God says, Let there be light, and there was light. God was like, Hey, that's pretty good, I'll make some more stuff. Let's call that a first day. The next day, let's call it day two, God divides the water of the earth from the water of the sky. The sky is made of water? Yup, that's day two. Day three, land. The land was good, but it needed some decoration. So God told the Earth to produce plants and stuff, which was also nice. Day four, lights in the sky, the sun and moon. Wait, what was that light from day one? Don't worry about it. Day five, fish and birds and sea monsters. Wait, what? Day six, big land animals and bugs. Cool, but God wasn't done. God says to someone, maybe, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness and let them rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all other animals. And then God did, creating man and woman in the image of God. God blessed them and gave us the first commandment in the entire Torah, be fruitful and multiply. God looked around and was pleased with creation. Good job, God. Day 7. Rest. Creating the universe is a lot of work, so a nap is in order. A sacred nap. A holy day of rest. And that's how the world was created. Just kidding, there's another version of the story. Wait, what? Okay, I guess. Here we go. So there was heaven and earth, but nothing else. No plants or animals or rain, but water emerges from the earth. Then God forms man, the man, Adam, from the dust of the soil and breathed life into his nostrils. To the east, God planted a garden and put the man there. In the garden, God grew nice trees and good fruit, and in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of all knowledge. There was also a river that watered the garden and then divided into four branches. So the man is in the garden. What does he do? He gardens. God tells the man he can eat from any tree except the special tree of the fruit of knowledge. Don't eat that. The punishment? Death. But there was a problem, the first problem in the Torah. It is not good for man to be alone. So God makes some animals and has the man name them. Adam named all of the animals, but none were a suitable mate. So God put the man to sleep and took a chunk of his side and formed it into a woman. The man was very pleased with this new creation, so there they were, naked, and happy. But then, there was a snake, and as we all know, snakes are quite cunning. The snake spoke to the woman because that was a thing that snakes could do, and convinced her to eat the fruit from the Tree of Knowledge. She ate some, and then gave some to the man, and their eyes were opened, and well, there they were, naked, and now not so happy. So they made themselves some clothes from fig leaves. Suddenly they heard God taking a walk in the garden, which was apparently a thing God did. God called out to the man, where are you? And the man said, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God replied, hold up, who told you you were naked? Did you do the one thing I explicitly told you not to do? So God got mad at the humans and also at the snake. The snake was cursed to crawl on his belly, which I guess he didn't do before, and made snakes and humans mortal enemies. God punished the woman with pain in childbirth and subservience to the man. God punished the man with a different kind of hard labor, forcing him to work the land for his food. So what was the woman's name? Chava, but let's just call her Eve, because sure. God made clothes for the humans and kicked them out from the garden, fearing they would also eat from the Tree of Life and become immortal. God guarded the garden with cherubim and a spinning sword of fire. Cool. Take that, Johnny Cash. Adam and Eve have a son named Cain, and then another named Abel. Abel was a shepherd while Cain worked the land. On one occasion, Cain brought some of his harvest as a sacrifice to God. Abel followed suit with an offering of lambs. God liked Abel's offering, but didn't so much care for Cain's. Cain was not pleased, to say the least. Cain thought about his brother Abel, and then some other stuff happened, probably. We don't know, because there's literally a break in the text. But then, Cain killed Abel in a field. God asked Cain, where's your brother? And he responded, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? That's a pretty sassy way to talk to God, and also the whole fratricide thing. So God curses Cain to walk the earth without the means to grow food. Cain was dismayed, saying his punishment was too great to bear, and that surely someone would kill him too. But God gives Cain a mark of protection, keeping him eternally safe from future killers. Cain had a son named Enoch who begat Irad, who begat Mehiael, who begat Metushael, who begat Lamech. There are also some women born, which will be important to populate the Earth. Come to think of it, who did Cain have kids with? Try not to think about it too much. There are a bunch more names, but this rundown is already really long, so moving on. Adam and Eve have another kid named Seth, and then Seth had a kid named Enosh. All of the people live a really long time, Methuselah winning the longest life award at 969 years. Who's that? It's Noah, he's a good person with a few sons. There's a lot going on on Earth with Nephilim and wickedness among the people, and God was not thrilled with the state of creation. So God decides to wipe out all the people and also the animals. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Eternal. So clearly, everything is going to work out just fine, right? And that is Parashat Bereishit.
3: Wow, Gabe, I have to tell you, next Shabbos here in the Bar Mitzvah Shabbos, I need you here, my friend, because. Instead of reading it in Hebrew, that's so nice, just to hear from you this uh, different kind of explanation and introduction of the Parsha. I know that people will love this kind of uh, reading of the Torah instead of the Hebrew one. So, I still think the Hebrew is important, but this is fun. (laughs) But this is fun. I can tell you, I was hearing you and writing some things that you said. I don't know, Amanda, I can talk with Gabe a little while, right?
1: <laughs> of course.
3: There's something that I like very much about the text and about this parsha when you invite me to talk, I said to Amanda that I love Rashad Brishid because... As you said, everything is beginning again uh, all the time. And uh, this is the most unbelievable and nice gift that God gives us in the beginning of the story. Because the first word, the first word which the Torah begins, is not the name of God. We can expect that it says, God in the beginning create, right? It's God. It's my book. I don't know. You said I wrote a sidur and the first page is my name, right? And uh, and. Why the first word of his book is not God? The first word of the book is Bereshit. The first word of the book is the first gift God gives us. That is time. The Torah begins with time. Something that God have not. This is one of our problems when we want to understand God. When we ask, did he know the future or the past or what people will do? Teshubah, but... God knows what I will do and the destiny. And no, my friend, God doesn't have any time. God creates time to give us time as an opportunity to be. That's why the first word of the Torah is time, is beginning. You have the opportunity to be because you have this time. And then gay begin with first day and second day and third day. And it's interesting because this kind of counting the, the time of the Torah generally gives us a lot of questions and a lot of people that says, you see, everything is a lie. It's impossible. We know, as science said, that the world has a million and billion of years of time creating. What is one day, two days? It's a Bube Torah. What are you talking about? It's unbelievable because it's so clear that the Torah laughs in this kind of things because it says, Gabe said, the first day, the light, and the second day, the water up and the water down, and the third day, the earth, and reason in the fourth day, the sun and the moon. And then in this, point, in this moment, you see that what is saying the Bible is that nothing was creating in the day that we know as a day. Because what is a day? What is 25 hours? What happened in our world in 24 hours to become a day? Is the time that the earth rotates and you need a sun and you need a moon to see the effect of the day and the night. This is 25 hours. You need these kind of things in the cosmos. But if the Torah says that recently in the third day there was an earth and in the fourth day it was a sun, so what happened in the first, the second, the third? How much time it's a day in the Torah? So it's not 25 hours. It were thousands of millions of times. It's Bible time, you know? So it's not a contradiction with science. It's absolutely not a contradiction. I love science. And I love to study about what happened in time in the cosmos. And that's why Shabbat is so interesting. Because as God gave us time as an opportunity, as a gift... We see that we as a people, as humanity, we mark different kinds of times in our life because a lot of things happen in the cosmos. I said, one day, what is one day? Well, one day is the time that the Earth rotates in itself. Okay, what is a month? What happens in the cosmos in the month? The moon completes a cycle. Perfect. And what happened in a year? What is a year in the cosmos? What happened?
2: the earth goes all the way around the sun.
3: Perfect. Everything happened in the cosmos when there's a a time, okay? And what is a week? What happened in the cosmos in a week? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Nothing happened in the cosmos. Shabbat is an invention of the Jews. (laughs) Shabbat is a marvelous invention. It's a gift that says the cosmos goes, the times goes on, but we can stop and take time. We can... Take time for us. Shabbat is an invention between God and human beings to catch the time and transform it in something sacred, right? And there's something interesting that you said that doesn't say in the text, Gabe. You said that the first day he creates blah, 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 and he says, and it was the first day second day, he says, and he creates this and this and this, and it was the second day. And that's all. And it was the third day and the fourth day and it was the afternoon and the morning of the fifth day and the afternoon and the morning of the sixth day and then comes Shabbat and it says a very popular song so, God created seven day, And he stopped and he rested. I have here in Spanish. I don't know, but you can translate it. And he creates everything on Shabbat and he rests from all of he did. But something happened. Something is less here in the Shabbat day. He didn't write something in the Shabbat day. It didn't say, It doesn't say in the end of the seventh day, it was the afternoon and it was the morning of the seventh day. It doesn't say. So what Kabbalists and mystics said is that the Yom HaShvi didn't conclude yet. We are still in the Yom HaShvi because every day is like a thousand of years. And when God created the seventh day, it doesn't say that it was finished. It doesn't say like the rest of the days. So we are still in Yom Hashveh. We are still in this great Shabbat of the existence of the world. And this is something interesting because you know that in Shabbat, what it says that did God, what does God in Shabbat? God rests. Of course. That's why you can't see God every time. He's in Shabbat. We are in Shabbat of the creation. In the time when the Shabbat of the creation will be and it will be the afternoon, the morning of the seventh day, it will become the eighth day. And the eighth day will be when Moshiach comes. The Yom Hashmini. Shmone is eight in Hebrew. Shmini, shamen, is the completeness, fullness. When will be the word complete? In the Yomashmini? but we are still in an an unbelievable and wonderful Shabbos. Shabbat for God. That's why he put us in this world because he needs some people to work in Shabbat. He needs some people to work and to guard and to plant his garden. That's why we are here. And I will tell you something else. You said that God put us in the garden, right? Yeah. And then we eat the fruit of knowledge of the good and the bad. The evil, or to say. And then what happened? What did God? Kicked us out of the garden. Right. And I think a lot of in this issue, right? Because just because we eat an apple to kick out of the garden is too much, right? One thing, and we are out and we are in a place like it's like a, without the garden. And you know, there is an interesting way of translate this Vaigaresh uh, et Adam. It says, that God kick out us of the garden. Vaygaresh, kick out. Et, to Adam, the human being, Adam. The Zohar, the Kabbalists, the mystics, they put God a lot of different names, you know. For the mystics, God has around 72 different names. And one of the names of God is Et. The word Et, it's a word that's composed by two letters, Aleph and Taf is the first Word, the first letter and the last letter of the alphabet. I need the people that know Hebrew, they can follow me. The people that don't know Hebrew, they need to believe me and just run and study. But et, it's a word with two letters the first one, aleph, and the last one, taf, et. Why? Because God is all the alphabet, is every word, is all the spellings. As you said, Gabe, when you read the first chapter, of the creation, it says that God said, "Let be the sun," and so the sun. And God said, "Let be the light," and so He did the light. And God said, God is always saying what He will create. So the mystic says that everything is word of God. We, as human beings, our limitation in our limitation, we see things, material things. But for the mystics, everything are letters. So they ask. What is the work of God since creation? He just created the mountains and the sun and the rivers and the human. What he did, what is his work? So they said that he is still saying the word. He is always, all the time, saying the word. So we can see the material things, but there are letters. That's why one of the names of God is Et, that has all the letters. So if the name of God is Et, The pasuk, the verse that says, "Vaigaresh et Adam, and he kicked us out from the garden, you can read it in an opposite way. et Adam. If et is the name of God, so God didn't kick us out of the garden. We kick God out of the garden. et Adam. So the humanity... Take, it, take God, This really reminds me
0: of something. I'm also a fan of Borges and the Kabbalists. And this reminds me of another Kabbalistic teaching from the beginning of Bereshit. Because, you know, we're usually translated the first sentence of the Torah as being, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? But say the Kabbalists, that's actually a mistranslation from when the Torah was translated to Greek in the Septuagint. In fact, they say that the grammar is incorrect. It should be Elohim bara Ete Shema Bereshit, right? So it's inverted. So what does it mean? That actually Bereshit created Elohim, which is almost a crazy thing. Well, what it's basically saying, some sort of entity created Elohim, what we think of as God. And what the Kabbalists mean with that is this reminds me of what you're saying, is that really the whole universe and what we think of God are really just one thing. A continuation of each other. Maybe God is more than that, but we're all really part of God, which I think is a really powerful thing.
3: Very powerful. I love what you're saying. I love Borges, of course. And it's interesting because in this way of thinking, so the biggest error, the biggest sin, mistake, it was not to eat a fruit. Because we can have a lot of mistakes. That's why we have uh, Yom Kippur, I don't know. And what? It's a mistake to know a knowledge between good and bad. It's perfect to know. I don't understand a God that doesn't like people to don't know the knowledge and the difference between good and bad. Knowledge is good always. So it was not a mistake to eat a fruit or to know the knowledge. The mistake was not to recognize that we are still in the garden.
1: And I think that that's realistically a huge piece of the work that you're doing, right? You are trying to lead people that are in this garden. And one of the questions that we generally ask our guests is how they connect the Parsha, how they connect what we're speaking about to the work that they've been doing. And we got into a very heavy Torah exploration, which is beautiful, especially as we're restarting the book. And one of the things that I'm thinking about was you talked about this gift of time and you've talked about kind of applying Torah to a truth that we may understand or may relate to. And as a rabbi, how is that working for you in terms of making sure that people are enjoying their time in the garden?
3: Great. And thank you, Amanda, because it's exactly the point. What for me as a rabbi or as a teacher, right, is to make people to think or rethink their time, to think where they are and what is your place in this garden, and not to blame God that this place is not a garden. We have a very big proposal. Is look that we blame God because of things that we are ashamed. We expel God from the garden, and so we say we are not in the garden. The point is to recognize that what is the garden? The garden is your family, is your house, your home, your congregation, your country, your neighborhood. But you say, this is everything but not a garden. Wait, in the Torah says, that God put Adam in the garden to guard it and to plant it. Why? Because it's not perfect. You have to plant it. You have to guard it like your neighborhood, like your family, like your congregation, like your country. But you can't be so blind to not see that you are in the garden. And it's your responsibility to to know what is your place in this garden. The issue about not knowing what place you are is basically the question that God says in this moment. I don't know if Gabe said this. It was very nice when he said the question that God said to Adam and Eve when they eat the fruit. Because he said, why didn't you do what I asked you? Something you something think you said, right? It's interesting because this is the question that God has to, to ask. Logically, he had to ask, hey, I ask you one thing. Why did you do this? Why didn't you do what I asked to you? But God doesn't say that. God asked one question, and Amanda, this is my answer for you. Huh? God asked one question. It's a strange question. He asked, "Where are you?" I am agree with Gabe's ask questions, like, "Why did you do this?" But God didn't ask this. He don't have a problem with the fruit and with the knowledge. He had the problem if you don't know what is your place in this garden. Where are you? What is your place in this world? Why are you here? Why are you not seeing that you are still in the garden? That's the question. Look, how do you say I in Hebrew? Ani. Very good. You know, it's a very simple Hebrew class. You know that every word in Hebrew that finish with e, the e says that it's mine, okay? Like for example, bite it's house. Bayti, it's my house. Sefer, it's a book. Sifri, it's my book. So ani, it has to be my an, ani, my an. And what is an in Hebrew? Le an the word an is where. So ani is my where. When you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are. Your ani is not an ani amiti, it's amiti, it's a trustfully I. When you don't know what is your place, your part in the garden, so you don't know who you are. So Amanda, what is my uh, expectation as a rabbi is not that people just uh, come to hear a very nice sermon or to feel uh, such a great music. I invite you in YouTube, in our YouTube channel of Amichai. It's the best one. But I will tell you, I want people to live from here asking themselves where I am in my life. Where is my I in my family? Where is my eye when I do everything that I do when I decide this today in the morning, when I have to decide something important for my family, for my spouse, for my kid or for my job? I am living like in the place that I need and I really was asked to leave.
1: No, that's beautiful. Normally, our last question that we ask our guests would be like, if you had a message, what would your message be? But I think that you answered it with your question of if you, you know, are trying to figure out who you are, one of the first things to do is figure out where you are. And you've talked so beautifully. We've had such an incredible time. But in the interest of time, we really want to make sure that Rafi also has an opportunity to continue his conversation with you. Of
3: course. You open a microphone for me, and it's a problem, I know.
1: No apologies needed.
3: Very rabbinic.
1: I think that Bereshi is a really interesting portion because it speaks to creating a new world. It speaks to creating a new community. It speaks to really creating something new and meaningful and putting boundaries on it and trying to understand how it might work. And I was really lucky that when I worked at Cornell Hillel, I had an incredible engagement intern who really wanted to redefine what engagement might look like on campus. And so it is my pleasure. It is my privilege to welcome Rafi Jakabowitz. As our Q&A guest today, Rafi was born and raised in Brazil, but is now a proud Brooklynite, which is exciting because it means that he's closer to me. Rafi was a student at Cornell where he had the privilege of meeting Amanda, which he wrote, which is me, who taught him that Hillel's have a bottomless coffee budget. I am so sorry, Hillel directors everywhere. He now works at Instagram and is co-founder of Crew, a platform that helps you make friends through small meals and drinks at the home of trusted hosts, or Shabbat meals for the masses, if you will. Rafi, it's such a pleasure to pass you the microphone.
3: Thank
0: you, Amanda. Yeah, coffee budget, insanely, insanely big. But I'm just going to go straight to the point, so... Rob, I have so much that I learned from you today. But, you know, one thing I was thinking about when Amanda asked me to do this, I thought it was pretty funny. I'm Brazilian, as Amanda just mentioned, and I was telling my dad about this. He also laughed. If you don't know, people on the podcast, Brazil and Argentina are sworn soccer enemies. So it was pretty funny that, Amanda, you asked me to do this. My dad was like, ah, classic gringos. But, you know, the thing is, in America, though, being Latino is something that's meaningful. It is a true shared community. You know, we have shared centers. Even in the Jewish community, there's Jewish Latin center in New York. There's neighborhoods like Aventura in Florida. But overall, we're different. You know, there's all sorts of different communities. There's a shared identity, but it's important to talk about About like all the differences so one thing I wanted to ask you rabbi is you know for me people all the time they meet me they ask me if I'm Ashkenazi if I'm Sephardi actually and I'm like no I'm Ashkenazi I call my zaidi zaidi, and I was wondering what is the breakdown in Argentina for where the people come from and when did people come from Argentina to the Jewish community
3: okay Rafi thank you about the where the Jewish community come. The most of the community, the Jewish community here in Argentina, is from Ashkenaz too, Ashkenazim. But it is a very, very important Sephardic um, congregation from different parts of the far- Sephardic different congregations. And here in Argentina, we used to be one of the most biggest uh, population, Jewish population in the diaspora, like the third or fourth. Jewish population in the world is still one of the most important and the biggest in all Latin America. And we are around 220,000 Jews in Argentina. And it's, uh, as I tell you, we have a Jewish population since since the last part of the 19th century. And uh, there are some registers that we are here since, I don't know, since 500 years. By the officially, we are from the first important immigration came in the last part of the 19th century, and especially, of course, in the war. Before the war and during the war, there came a lot of Jewry from the war, uh, from Europe. And at the same time, it's a very important congregation that have a a lot of aliyah every year uh, towards Israel. But here we have uh, dozens and dozens of Batei Knesset and Jewish schools and a lot of JCCs, huge by uh, thousands of people and families, uh, huge JCCs and day schools and uh, orthodox, not neon orthodox, conservative reform and light non-religious schools and organizations. So it's a very vibrant and uh, with a lot of struggles and tourists, of course, community, and we're proud of it. And one thing that I really like about the Argentinian
0: community, which I don't think most people know, is that as far as I know, a lot of the early Jews were gauchos, right? They were like Argentinian cowboys. And I was like fascinated by it because it's like some upper west, some, uh, I don't know, Midwest meets US meets South America. And I was wondering if you know any Jewish gauchos and how they ended up going back to the city.
3: Yes, of course. There are very, very few now. In the time of the war, when uh, there were a lot of different communities that came here to Argentina in the fields inside Argentina, they became, as you say, gauchos like the cowboys. (laughs) I never think about it. Like the cowboys here. And some of their families, those families are still in the fields, but the 95% came to the cities, right? A long time ago. But some residents are still there. And I will tell you, in this Yom Kippur, some of those little, little, very little congregations that are still in the fields, and one of them, I can tell you, Avigdor. Avigdor was a German-Jewish colony with a Jewish name, Avigdor. It still uh, exists. It's a very, very little, it's not a city even. It's 400 people live there. It's a very little town. And there are only 20 Jews there that live. It used to be only Jewish population, that about all of them live. There are still only 20. But in the middle of the city is still the, the Beit Knesset, the synagogue, in front of the house of the government, let's say, right? Instead of a church, there is still the Beit Knesset, And it's the place where all the important things of the town happen. And the governor of the city is a Jew, of course, one of the 20. And uh, they send us a letter, so nice, that they don't have, not a rabbi, not a chazan, not a canton, not nothing. That inside the, the synagogue, in the bima they put a TV, a huge TV, with the services from Amihai, uh, our services in Rosh Hashanah Kippur, and he was like crying, saying that it was full, the, the Beit Knesset, with all the 20 Jews. Those full never happened, living with us, there, the Yamin Morai. It was very nice. Those are the, the cowboys. That's
0: so cool. <laughs> Tango dancing cowboys, who the funk. I think this is just like good to show American audience what Argentinian Jews are like. And I guess one question that, whenever a country comes up in Jews, is is it good for the Jews, right? People ask me about Brazil all the time. And I think when Argentina, it's such a big community that I think the answer in the end has to be yes. But I think a lot of things that people know that are, you know, make the question a little complicated. Like, for example, people wonder how come so many, you know, after the war, so many Nazis ended up in Argentina or why did the JCC bombing in Buenos Aires happen? Or more recently with the Guzman case, right, when a J- Jewish priestman, right? The Jewish prosecutor came and was actually investigating the case. It kind of got buried. So I was wondering, is there problems with the general community, and how do you feel about it?
3: Well, it's a very good question. Yes, a lot of Nazis came here, Argentina, in this time, just like to the U.S. Too. A lot of them go to unbelievable countries, right? To Great Britain, to U.S., to Argentina. It's a shame for all of them, but they escape. I can tell that it never happened here that a Nazi party became like an important issue here. There are anti-Semitic things here. I can tell you, yes. But you can feel here in Argentina an unbelievable warm and uh, friendship. And I was part of the declaration of Buenos Aires as the capital of the interfaith meetings and, and congresses. It's unbelievable the work we do with the church and some of the Muslim congregations and evangelics, et cetera. I can tell you, i walk with my kippah since 30 years, every part of the Buenos Aires, in shanty towns everywhere, and I never had a problem. What happened with the Amiya and with the Nisman, it's, it's a tragedy that we still don't have justice and we still reclaim and ask for justice, but it was a lot of politics and dark, dark people of our politics that make this a uh, disaster, even with uh, the Nisman case. But it's hard for me to say that it shows me that the Argentinian people, uh, it's an anti-Semitic people. And it's not like this. It's, I don't feel, and I ever felt that we have to struggle against anti-Semitism. There are some uh, Michiganers everywhere. And all the time, of course, all the time, there are some things Then when something happened in Israel, et cetera, because we have not such a lot of asbara, but I have to tell that most of the Argentina people are absolutely friends of Israel and, and Judaism.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Appreciate it a lot.
3: You are a great interviewer.
0: Thank you. You know, the one thing Brazilians can do is get along with everyone, even our sworn enemies, but we're all Jews here, so we can
2: get along. <laughs> Hey Amanda, do you know why popular culture imagines the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil as an apple?
1: I'm pretty sure that I failed at science earlier today, and I'm not sure that I'm going to do much better at popular culture. So why, Gabe?
2: Well, the Latin word for evil, as in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is malum. And the Latin word for apple is malum, which comes from the Greek neo which is related to mion, which is where we get the word melon, but none of that is important. What it does create is either a pun or a very easy misunderstanding between apple and evil. So for this week we have a cocktail based on that evil apple itself, the forbidden fruit. On a plate, mix together about half a teaspoon of flaky sea salt with a pinch each of ground cinnamon and cayenne pepper. Rim a rocks glass with a lime wedge and dip into your salt mixture. In a cocktail shaker, combine two ounces of tequila, one and a half ounces of apple cider, three quarters of an ounce each of lime juice and simple syrup, and another pinch each of cinnamon and cayenne. Shake that with ice and strain over fresh ice into your prepared glass. For a non-alcoholic version, skip the tequila and top with soda water at the end. Either way, garnish with an apple slice and a cinnamon stick. This drink may not grant you eternal life or all knowledge of good and evil, but it will taste pretty good and give you a bit of a kick in the process. Lechaim.
3: le chaim Hey Gabe, send one of those drinks here to Argentina.
2: I will wait for it. All right, uh, air mail. Uh, we'll see if they let it through customs. It'll be great.
3: Yeah, my FedEx, by FedEx please. yes. <laughs>
1: Even though we're starting a new beginning with our brand new book, our brand new Parsha Bereshit, our brand new season, our second season, if we can believe it, we have come to that ending of this week's episode, our thank yous and closing cues segment. So, Rabbi Ale, Rafi, Gabe, Idan, in Bereshit's and Parsha Bereshit, we are taught that a huge part of creation is to set or create boundaries. Delineations so that we understand how to identify, how to label, and sometimes how to act, whether it is creating literal, you know, land versus sea or light versus dark or evening and morning or knowing how to name a day. When you are working on creating meaningful communities, new worlds, what boundaries or delineations do you set to make the interactions more meaningful? Rab Ale we'll start with you.
3: Okay. Well, I think that we all, human beings, are equal. It's very important to know it. Men and women and uh, Argentinians and Americans, Israelis, Iranians, Bolivians, French and homosexual and heterosexual and uh, tall and small and black and white and everything. We are equal in front of God and in front of the law. We have to be equal. After that, Everything is different, all of us, Baruch Hashem. All of us different because in the name of the equality, we forget the importance of the boundaries, of the limitations, of the differences. All of us that believe that God created the world, that's what we are talking since the break sheet of this program, we only have to see the world he created. There is not a place that is the same to the other place, not a face that is equal to other face. Not a sun in the mountain equal in Europe than in the States than here in Argentina. Then there's a climax different. In, there is not an animal equal to another an animal. It's not a, a bird or an egg. Nothing It's equal to another thing. He creates an unbelievable multicolor world. So who can believe that this God wanted? only one way to sing to him, to pray to him, to ask to him or to ignore him. He's a very multicolored God. And the boundaries is such an important thing to know that you are so special, unique and different and that your people it's so special, unique and different and that your country is and your gender is and your aspiration are and your dreams are. So I think that the most important boundary is to know that you are unique that you don't have and your need to copy any other life. You have to choose life. When the Torah says, choose life, it says, choose your life, not another life, because your life is unique. But it will be only when you know where you are and what part of the garden is yours and that your house and your life is the garden. So everything is connected. What is the boundary? The first one, we, me, my ani, my an, my place. This is the first one. We are equal as human beings in front of God and in front of the law. But after that, everyone in his own limitations, in his own self, in his own particular life.
1: Beautiful. Rafi, what are you thinking? I know that this is something that you're working on now with your new startup.
0: Yeah. So again, just to recap, Crew is a platform where you can sign up and you can basically make friends for small meals and drinks that we match you to people who are similar to you. So we definitely thought a lot about this. And there's when it comes to friendships, it's a little different than a community, right? A community is more about a statement and practices that you do together. But for friendships, which is also a big part of conversation, there are some very basic things like interests, personality, and obviously these are really important. But what we have found that is the most important is your values. What are your values that you put out into the world and the ones that you care about? And that, by the way, is the same thing about identity, because in a way, a lot of times identities and values are are really the same. So when we put these things out there, we ask people, what are the identities and values you care about? And you get some really surprising answers, like some really political ones. We got some really like, oh, I really care about rock climbing, which seems silly, seems like just an interest-based thing, but it's really important to some people. So when it comes to making identities work, it's really about putting out what your value is
1: beautiful answers so far from Ali and Rafi. We have knowing who you are and your uniqueness. We have your values. Idan, what do you have for us today?
0: Well, I think that it's interesting because I don't think that there should necessarily be like hard boundaries between people and groups of people. But I do think that to an extent, it's important to create sort of soft boundaries or at least a framework for people to be able to interact and converse about things that matter to them and are important to them to sort of foster relationships and groups, similar to what Rafi was saying. And so I think that finding the areas that can be used to create those sort of virtual groups, I guess, because you don't really want to divide people up, but sort of groups there for people to spend time in with other people and learn from other people and be with
1: other people. Incredible, this idea of just being able to ensure that everyone is somewhat involved, sometimes in even creating their own boundaries. Gabe, what you got for us in your new world?
2: As a cantorial student, as somebody who's aspiring to lead communities and build communities in song, I think that one of the greatest ways to create community is to create music together. And while that is something that we do together, while that's something that can be beautiful in unison, one thing that can make music even more beautiful is harmony. And so I love this idea that really everybody has brought up so far that it's actually our differences that can make a community stronger. It's actually those different parts, those different sections that can make the choir more beautiful.
1: Absolutely and truly music to my ears. I love whenever I'm able to sit with a group that's singing. For me, this will come as no surprise to anyone who's ever met me in person. Uh, My rules around community is ensuring that people have the food they like to eat. I am really careful about making sure that people have the right snacks or drinks, uh, whether it's water or gluten-free or dairy-free or vegan altogether or just making sure that people feel like they have something to fill their stomachs uh, so that when people are full, I know that we can have an incredible conversation and, and these conversations are important. And Rab Ale, Rafi, for people that want to continue the conversation, how might they be able to find or follow you? Is there a website? Is there a social media? What do you prefer? Rab Ale will start with you and then Rafi will let you just jump in.
3: I will tell you, I am so, so bad with all these things, the media, but I know that I have an Instagram, somebody told me, and the Facebook page or something, because I don't know, it's like that you have a, such an amount of friends, like 5,000 or something I like did, and it's full. So now we have a page. So just click Ali Avrukh, and you will get the Instagram and the Facebook, and very interesting to come to the Congregation page, you have everything there to study with us and to pray with us. It's amichai, amichai, just look at amichai.org.
1: Amazing. And we'll make sure that those are in the show notes. Rafi, if people want to hang out with you, how can they find you?
0: I work at Instagram, so Instagram is definitely the place to hit me up. My Instagram handle is R-A-F-A-S-J-6, like Rafa. And then if you want to know and learn more about Crew, you can go to crew.ny. That's also our Insta handle. And thanks so much for having us.
1: Thank you so much, Rob Ale. Thank you, Rafi. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you, Idan. And of course, thank you, Kate, for editing us to make us sound just a little less ridiculous as we start our new season. It has been such a pleasure, such a privilege. And oh my goodness, Gabe, I know we say when we end a book. Is there anything that we should say as we're starting a new book, as we're starting a new season? Amen. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. I really appreciated Rob Ali's talking about the on and the e, like knowing where I am, which is the question that God asked Adam, right? Ayeka, where are you? And the ability to say ani or anochi, I have no idea where I am half the time these days because I feel like I'm always traveling especially whether it's during Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or Sukkot or Simchat Torah. It feels like I've been on the road so much these days, and I haven't necessarily had the ability to just sit for a moment and figure out where am I and who am I and what part of the garden am I excited about taking part of.
2: I think what I most appreciated from Rabbi Ale was this conversation of time of not only where are we, but when are we and what time means in a theological context, but also in this like cosmic context, this context of what is time to God, and this really incredible idea that time is God's gift to us. I think there's something really magical about that, especially when you consider the idea of Shabbat as a palace in time, that not only is time God's gift, but even within that gift, there's a sacred piece.
1: There is something really sacred about Bereshit, about this not knowing, about this et, about the Aleph and Tav of it all, of trying to encompass the creation of entire world in one chapter. I think that's crazy, and I think it's meaningful and special, and it shows that our Torah has a way with words that we don't always understand, but that we try to take ownership of anyway, that we try to find a special relationship in the sacred, the things that matter, whether it's the words, the timing, or the lettering.
2: I absolutely agree, and I think that what's so amazing about finding all of these intricacies and hidden gems within the lettering and within the text itself is that we get to read it over and over again. So as we start this new cycle of Torah reading with this first parashah, I'm just so excited to be on this journey with all of you. So with that, l'chaim.
1: L'chaim to all, and to all a great book. ha. <laughs>
3: I am Rabbi Ali Avruch and you're listening to Drinking and Drushing Torah with a Twist and I invite you to find your place in the garden.